Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me for Teens podcast. I'm Josh Downs, your host, and let me begin by apologizing for the late release of this particular episode. I don't even recognize my own voice as I'm talking here. This past week has been a little rough with uh, respiratory illness, which makes it very difficult to podcast, I've found, and what do you do about it? That's just life, isn't it? Sometimes things don't go as intended and as planned and as you want. But trying to make the most of it, I wanted to get this out as quickly as I could today. Now I've got my voice somewhat working. Um, we're going to be taking a look at First and Second Thessalonians. And this will be a little bit of a shorter episode due to the complications with my voice. But we're going to give it a go and just at least get this out there. A few principles uh, for you to consider as, as you kind of wrap up your week study. Um, the background of the, these particular chapters is as follows. In Thessalonica, Paul and Silas were accused of having turned the world upside down. Their preaching angered certain leaders among the Jews, and these leaders stirred the people into an uproar. As a result, Paul and Silas were advised to leave Thessalonica. However, Paul worried about the new Thessalonian converts and the persecution that they were facing, but he was unable to return to visit them. When I could no longer forbear, he wrote, I sent to know your faith. In response, Paul's assistant Timothy, who had been serving in Thessalonica, brought us good tidings of your faith and charity. In fact, the Thessalonian saints were known as examples to all that believe, and news of their faith spread to cities abroad. Imagine Paul's joy and relief to hear that his work among them was not in vain. But Paul knew that faithfulness in the past is not sufficient for spiritual survival in the future. Boy, did you catch that phrase? Paul knew that faithfulness in the past is not sufficient for spiritual survival in the future. And he was wary of the influence of, of false teachers among the saints. And so his message to them and to us is to continue to perfect that which is lacking in our faith and to increase more and more in love. Now, back when I was in high school playing athletics, playing basketball in particular, I learned early on that there were two things that were absolutely crucial for my success. And they were first, preparation. The more I worked, the more I prepared, the better I performed. And then second was the ability to receive direction and counsel and even criticism to have pointed out where I was weak and not to take it personal, but to take it as an opportunity to improve. If I ever stopped in any of those two things, I was setting myself up for failure because the opposition wasn't going to rest. I knew there were others out there that would continue to prepare and continue to put in the work and continue to find out where they needed to improve the most upon. And in a lot of ways, that's Paul's message here that you'll find and probably have found as you've studied this week that we can never stop until, as one prophet said, we are safely dead <laughs> because the opposition will never cease. And so it's up to us and important that we continue to try to perfect that which is lacking in our faith, which is the first principle that I wanted to focus on today. 
And under the kind of the phrase, what lack I yet? You remember that phrase from back when we studied the, the New Testament, the life of Christ? The rich young ruler that had everything that came to Christ and said, not only do I have great wealth, but I've also kept all the commandments from my youth. What more do I need to do to inherit the inter- eternal life that you have talked about? Well, one of the most important steps in the process of coming to Christ and in improving ourselves is to be able to ask the same question that this rich young man asked of Christ, which was, what lack I yet? What a wonderful question to be able to ask, but also a very difficult one to receive the answer to because it often involves having pointed out where we're weak or what we've been doing wrong. Elder Larry R. Lawrence of the 70 taught that the journey of discipleship is not an easy one. It has been called a course of steady improvement. As we travel along the straight and narrow path, the Spirit continually challenges us to be better and to climb higher. The Holy Ghost makes an ideal traveling companion, and if we're humble and teachable, He will take us by the hand and lead us home. However, we need to ask the Lord for directions along the way. We have to ask some difficult questions like, what do I need to change and how can I improve? What weakness needs strengthening? And that can be hard, can it? Especially as a young person who, as I remember going through those years, it's very hard to just even feel good about ourselves as we're trying to really discover who we are, let alone to ask those kinds of questions. What can I do better? How can I improve? What am I doing wrong? President Harold B. Lee taught that every one of us, if we would reach perfection, must at one time ask ourselves this question, what lack I yet? There is something that's just good about asking that question. Being teachable is a wonderful quality to learn, especially while you're young. And so young people, I hope that you'll take this to heart. Yes, it's not always easy to take correction. It's even harder to ask for it. But when you do, you are on the path of progress. Boy, that's one of the things I would challenge you. You imagine, give this a test. Ask your parents one day, just out of the blue, Mom, what can I do better to be better? What can I do to improve as a person? What can I do to improve here at home? What can I do to improve at at church or in my faith? What can I do to improve in school? Um, I think, (laughs) and then just kind of watch. Watch the shock that comes out of their face. Because that's not a normal thing for a young person to do. It's not a normal thing for an older person to do, which is why I want to challenge you to do it and see how they respond. In his talk, Elder Lawrence also gives several examples of what this looks like in life. And he referred to, I remember, several stories. One of a lady that just seemed to complain all the time. And so the Holy Ghost for her, when she asked that question, was just to stop complaining. Another one, uh, there was a young man that he referenced that wanted to find a companion. And the answer came back when he asked the question, what lack I yet, from the Spirit and others, was to clean up his language. There was a single sister that he referenced that received inspiration to not interrupt people when they are talking as much. That was a very individualized correction. There was a return missionary he talked about that was overwhelmed with school and life and asked, what can I do to feel more at peace? That was his way of asking, what lack I yet? And the answer came back, to observe the Sabbath day. Dedicate one day to the Lord. And in all these examples, amazing things happened when they focused on 
just changing the smallest things about them. Years ago, I remember reading in a church magazine the story of a girl who was living away from home and going to college, which many of you are doing or you will be doing soon. She was behind in this particular case in her classes, and her social life was not what she had hoped for. She was generally unhappy. And so finally one day she fell to her knees and cried out, What can I do to improve my life? And you know what the Holy Ghost whispered to her of all things? Get up and clean your room. (laughs) This prompting came as a complete surprise, but it was just the start that she needed. After taking time to organize and put things in order, she felt the Spirit fill her room and lift her heart. Isn't that interesting? What a little thing like that could do. The Holy Ghost doesn't tell us to improve everything at once. And often it's not something grandiose or very big. If he did, we would become discouraged most likely and give up. So the Spirit works with us at our own speed, one step at a time. Or as the Lord taught, line upon line, precept upon precept. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. As someone once said, the most important commandment for us to keep is the one that we are struggling with the most. I remember Elder Holland in his talk, Labors in the Vineyard, said, My beloved brothers and sisters, to those of you who have been blessed by the gospel for many years because you were fortunate enough to find it early, to those of you who have come to the gospel by stages and phases later, and to those of you, members and not yet members, who may still be hanging back, To each of you, one and all, I testify of the renewing power of God's love and the miracle of His grace. And then he said this, His concern is for the faith at which you finally arrive, not the hour or the day which which you got there. So, he challenged us, if you have made covenants, keep them. If you haven't made them, make them. If you have made them and broken them, repent and repair them. It's never too late so long as the master of the vineyard says there is time. Please listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit telling you right now, this very moment, that you should accept the atoning gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy the fellowship of his labor. Don't delay. It's getting late. What lack I yet? What can I do more to perfect my faith? Some questions to consider about this principle is just that question. That is the question, isn't it? What lack I yet? Ask that question of the Lord and of those in your life. What has the Lord been telling you for a while now to do? I have a feeling if you really stop and listen, you've heard that voice. You know what it is. What has he been telling you to change, to maybe even give up? Remember, the most important commandment to keep is the one that you're struggling with the most. So what might that one be for you? Remember the importance of practicing patience, especially with your parents. So ask your mom and dad what they think you can do to improve, to do better in school, to feel better about yourself, to have more friends, to get more out of your life, to be happier. You'll be surprised by the answers, but not as much again as I think they will be surprised by the question. And lastly, how can you develop the regular practice of asking this question and acting on the promptings you receive? Now, principle two is all about the second coming. This was always such a fun topic of conversation in my seminary classes with my students. 
as we talked about the different signs and the events that were leading up, it's a very fascinating and exciting thing to talk about. One of the things I remember my students often asking me, though, that was always so funny, was just simply, as it related at least to the second coming, was, Brother Downs, when is it that the zombie apocalypse is supposed to happen? <laughs> I hate to break it to you, young people. There's not going to be an, a zombie apocalypse, no matter what Hollywood says or all the shows and things that are out there. That is not a part of the events and the signs leading up to the second coming. Now, there does mention that, that many of the dead will rise from their graves, but he's not talking about zombies. These are resurrected beings that will be visiting and making appearance to many. But as it relates to the second coming, one of the great verses in here that you'll need to know as a missionary is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Apparently at the time, even back then, many of the saints were worried and were anxious about the second coming, wanted to know when was the Lord going to come again. And in these verses, the apostles, and Paul in particular, strives to put their worries at ease and teaches a great principle in the process of how to avoid worry and anxiety and fear, especially as it relates to the second coming, which is always associated with the signs because there's some very powerful and scary and fearful kinds of things that are talked about that will lead up to the second coming, isn't there? But Paul says in these verses this, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us is that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. One of the things that he points out in these verses is if there is information related to the second coming and when it's going to happen, did you catch where it's going to come from? From the Spirit, the the Word or Scriptures, or by us? And, and we'll revisit those in just a moment because the Lord wants us to know about His coming and He wants us to be prepared for it. But one of the things that Paul points out in these verses is before he comes again, there will be a falling away first. This was a sign that even back then the saints were able to kind of hold on to and recognize that that there was some time that was going to pass before he came again. And what, although they may not have fully understood it, what Paul is referring to was the great apostasy, the great falling away. And I love, and you will love as a missionary, referencing that verse and, and showing those that you're teaching the process that that the church has gone through since its formation in the early days of Christ, that there was going to be a falling away, and there was a falling away. It was called the Dark Ages, a very dark time in the world's history where the priesthood and revelation, apostles, the structure of the church was taken from the earth, was lost because of wickedness, where doctrines and principles were twisted and corrupted because of the same thing. But in this verse, Paul points out that that was known. It was going to happen. And we know now that it did. Even back then, obviously, there was great anxiety for the second coming. And it was the brethren. It was the apostles. It was Paul that was able to put that to ease when they listened to his counsel and direction. And it will be the same for us today. When you listen to our prophet, when you listen to our apostles, do you get any sense of anxiety and fear 
as it relates to the coming of Christ and to the second coming. Now there's great joy and anticipation and urgency to prepare for it and to prepare the world for his coming. Now, one of the reasons why there has been anxiety and fear, in addition to all the information about the signs and the terrible things that apparently will come prior to the second coming, has been one verse in particular. And it is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul references that the second coming will come as a thief in the night. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to come suddenly and it will catch the world by surprise and they will be largely unprepared for it. But we've heard that scripture so much that most of us have missed the second part of Paul's counsel in these verses regarding the second coming. Yes, again, to those that live in darkness, they won't see it coming, but that is not us. One of the other verses that I would have you make sure to mark and to share with those especially that get anxious about the second coming is verse 4 in chapter 5, where Paul says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. In other words, the second coming is not going to catch us by surprise. For those that are children of the day, we will see it coming. We will be prepared for it. That is the number one job and and role that prophets are performing right now, is to prepare us for the Lord's coming. They will give us the instruction that we need to be ready for. And there's great comfort, great, great comfort, you guys, that we can take in that verse. But the best thing that we can do to prepare for the Lord's coming is then to stay in the light. Or, as Elder Ballard taught it, to stay in the boat. (laughs) In fact, in his great talk titled The Same, he referenced some quotes from President Brigham Young, which he calmly referred to the old ship Zion as a metaphor for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in which he said on one occasion, we are in the midst of the ocean. A storm comes on, and as sailors say, she labors very hard. I'm not going to stay here, says one. I don't believe this is the ship Zion, but we are in the midst of the ocean. I don't care. I'm not going to stay here. And off goes the coat, and he jumps overboard. Will he not be drowned? Yes, so with those who leave this church, it is the old ship Zion. Let us stay in it. On another occasion, President Young said that he also worried about people losing their way when they were being blessed, when life was good. It is in calm weather when the old ship of Zion is sailing with a gentle breeze and when all is quiet on deck that some of the brethren want to go out in the whaling boats to have a swim and Some get drowned, others drifted away, and others again get back to the ship. Let us stick to the old ship, and she will carry us safely into the harbor. You need not be concerned. And finally, President Young reminded the saints, We are on the old ship Zion. God is at the helm and will stay there. All is right. Sing hallelujah, for the Lord is here. He dictates, guides, and directs. If the people will have implicit confidence in their God, never forsake their covenants nor their God, he will guide us right. Now that, to me, just speaks so powerfully and provides so much comfort, especially 
in terms of preparing for the second coming of the Lord. I remember as I taught the Old Testament one year, there was one story in particular where there was disobedience in the camp of Israel. There was great complaining as they were journeying in the wilderness. So one of the things the Lord did to kind of purge that out of them was he sent fire to purge the camp. In the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 1, it records, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them, now pay attention to this, that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. I remember reflecting on that verse thinking, okay, if he's sending fire into the camp, why only burn the uttermost parts of the camp? Why be selective in that way? Why not just send fire and randomly, you know, destroy some people? But then I got the thought that the Lord works very intently. And if he were to send fire and his purpose was to teach the children of Israel a lesson and help them to stop complaining, chances are that that fire probably consumed those that were the ones complaining the most. And then I recognized where that fire again was happening. It was on the outskirts of camp. I thought, you know what? That is human nature. When we tend to move away from God, we move to the outskirts of things. We move to the outskirts of church. We move to the outskirts of faith. We move to the outskirts of where the spirit isn't. And so I think that fire was very intentional. It burned the parts of the camp where people were starting to leave the boat if that makes sense. That's where the complaining was most likely coming from. It was the edges of the camp, those, again, closest to leaving the boat. And you know, on the flip side, what it was that was in the middle of the camp, whenever they set up camp, they put in the middle the tabernacle or the temple, and then all the tents went outward from there. Again, a great metaphor in our journey in life, in staying in the boat, the closer we can get to the church, the closer we can get to the temple, that's the center place of the boat. That's where we will be the safest. So get as close as you can to the temple. That is where you'll be the safest, young people, in your journey through life. That is where you'll be the safest from ever leaving the boat when things get hard or difficult or when things are easy and comfortable couple key questions for you to consider in terms of this principle is one from these verses why should we not fear the second coming quite so much number two what comforts can we take away from these verses as we approach the second coming and the end of the world another question what is the role of prophets in preparing the world preparing the church for his coming and what does it mean to you to stay safely in the boat as it relates to the church and what does that look like to you to be safely in it? And then finally, what can or will you do to get more centered in the church, to get closer to the temple and less on the outskirts and less on the fringes? Now for the last principle, just a, a quick one here. I think after talking about all of these things, Paul referencing so much about the second coming and what we need to do to just continue to move forward and to perfect our faith. I noticed that in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he kind of gives a list of those things that we can be doing now to prepare for the Lord's coming. And there's a powerful thought that goes along with this. The best time to prepare for something is now. The second coming for you and I could be as soon as tomorrow. It could be today even. 
we never know when we're going to be called home. And so there is no more of an important time to start preparing than right now, which is why I love this list so much. Here's some great suggestions. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 23. And I'd encourage you to read through these verses and mark any of these that stick out to you, that resonate with you, and kind of be watching for others throughout all these chapters. I think you'll find many that Paul is teaching these particular saints and all of us, the types of things we can be doing to prepare now for the Lord's coming and to better perfect our faith. One of the things that he mentions first in these verses, 14 through 23, is to warn those that need to be warned. That's our friends. That's our family. That's our neighbors. Those are our co-workers. As one scripture records, it behooveth every man that has been warned to warn his neighbor. It's one of the things that I worry about the most is getting to heaven and have people come up to me that I knew on earth and ask me, why didn't you say something to me? Why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you share with me what you had? It could have helped me so much. That's one of the things that we can all work on a little bit better is to warn those around us, to share the gospel, to share our faith, to share our testimony. Paul then mentions another thing is that we can comfort the feeble-minded. What can you do to basically alleviate worry and fear? There's so much of that in the world today, isn't there? Young people, this is what God does First, all the time throughout scriptures, before he ever delivers messages, he alleviates fear and anxiety and worry. How can we help him do that with others in our lives? How can we help calm the troubled hearts? I remember watching my children grow up. Whenever there was anything to be afraid of, you know who they always looked to first? Their parents. They looked to them to see how they should react and respond. And if we were afraid, oh, you better believe they were afraid. and They'd start crying. But if we were strong, if we were confident, if we were calm, a lot of times I watched as my children would develop those abilities and those qualities in themselves. And they would become calm. And we can have that effect on others in our lives. The more that we are calm, the more that we are confident, the more that we have faith, the, the stronger that we are, others will look to us and mirror those things in themselves. Next, he says to support the weak. Not everyone will be as prepared as you, young people, especially when it comes to your mission. You will have missionary companions, and you'll have friends now, and you'll have others in your life that will need help and support. Remember to always help others want to get to know God because they first knew you. Paul then also invites us to be patient toward all men. Boy, this is one we can all work on, isn't it? One of the greatest virtues that there is, is patience. President Uchtdorf, I remember in a talk titled, Wait Upon the Lord, mentioned that each of us will be called to wait somehow in some way in our own way. It will be our personal opportunity to develop patience. Truth is, we have those opportunities every single day, don't we? Whether it's driving in traffic or being around family and friends or at school, take those opportunities for what they are and work on being patient towards all men. Don't render evil for evil, Paul says, but evil for good. It's always easy to love those that love us, to be kind to those that are kind to us. That's not hard to do. But where it gets hard and where the growth is, is to love those that hate us, to be kind to those that are cruel and mean to us, to take whatever evil has been done to us and turn it into something good. Next, Paul reminds us to rejoice evermore. Men are, after all, that they might have joy. It's not always easy to do in this world, but we of all people have reason 
to find joy in even the most difficult of situations. He then counsels us. Another thing we can do to, to prepare for the Lord's coming is to pray without ceasing. Remember, prayer keeps man from sin, and sin keeps man from prayer. I don't know who it was that said that, but I've always loved that. It's ironic that the time that we need to pray the most is often the time that we feel like praying the, the least. He counsels us in everything, give thanks, for that is the will of the Lord. And young people, there is maybe not anyone on this list more powerful than this, the power of gratitude. And if you've not started a gratitude journal, I would challenge you to do that. It will change your life. To even just find three things every day that you could briefly write down in your journal that you're grateful for will begin to develop within you the eyes to see the good that is in your life and instead focus on the bad, which is so natural for us to do. Paul then uh, counsels us to quench not the spirit, which I hear him saying, don't think that you can get too much of it. It's so important to let the Spirit do its work in your life, to strive to keep it always with you. It really is the one thing in this life that you can't get too much of. And then he says, despise not prophesying. There's really enough said there. Prophets may not always give us counsel and direction that we like, that we agree with, there may be things that we struggle with, but we need to listen because they are prophets. We need to work through those things and to try to follow them as closely as they can. I remember back when I was young, President Hinckley giving counsel for young women to only wear two earrings. And boy, did that set off a firestorm among members of the church as to whether or not that was really necessary or important or from God, all those kinds of things. But... It's about following the prophet, regardless of what they counsel. Yes, we have the opportunity to receive our own revelation and confirmation, and we should. But I think it's silly to think the prophets will always ask us to do things that make sense. I mean, you look at the scriptures and you see if you can find anything that often makes sense that they ask us to do. From putting lamb's blood on a door to getting in a boat when things are sunny, prophets will not always counsel us to do things that make sense. Remember Naaman in the Old Testament was told in order to be cured from leprosy to go wash himself seven times in the dirtiest water and river in all of Jordan. But he did it, even though it didn't make sense. And amazing things happened. Despise not prophesying. Paul then counsels us to prove all things, to hold fast to that which is good. Boy, it takes great wisdom to let go of certain things in our life and even greater wisdom to hold on to those things that matter most, to hold fast to that which is good. Let us never let go of our families. Let us never let go of our faith. Let us never let go of good friends. Let us never let go of things that invite the Spirit into our life. Let us never let go of Christ. Abstain from the very appearance of evil. I remember being a return missionary. and There were just simply some things that I started to try to do again that I had done before I left that just were not appropriate anymore. I had changed. I had grown. And some things, although they weren't necessarily bad, maybe could have had the appearance of it. And I was being instructed by the Spirit that it was time for me to let go of some of those things that I had done in the past and been okay doing that weren't necessarily bad or wrong, but maybe could have been seen that way. You'll feel the Spirit do something very similar for you, especially when you get back from your mission. You won't be able to return back 
to many of the former things, whether it's maybe some of the music you used to listen to or just activities that you used to do. You'll be different and you'll feel it. And the Spirit will always help us to abstain from the very appearance of evil. Lastly, Paul reminds us and teaches us that as we do these things, the end result is that God will sanctify you, that you will be cleansed, that you will be prepared to stand in His presence. That's the beauty of all of these things and the end result of preparing for His coming. A couple last key questions to consider about this is, one, why should we look at the second coming as happening any day? What's the value in looking at it in that way? Why is it so important to be prepared for it? And what things on this list that Paul gives to prepare resonate with you the most? Which ones do you feel you need to work on the most? And if there was one or were one to start working on more today, which one would it be and where would you start? To end with, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Paul counsels us in this way, Be not weary in well-doing. Always keep moving. Always keep improving. And then he says this, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I have said it before and I will say it again until I'm blue in the face. One of the most important things we can do is to follow the prophet. From the time we were little and learned those primary songs about following the prophet, it has been paramount for every person in this church to keep our eyes focused on Christ through our living prophet and apostles. They will guide us safely back to him. Referring back to that instruction and counsel that was received by President Inkley years ago about not wearing two earrings for women, which may not necessarily seem like a big deal, and and really, in the grand scheme of things, probably isn't. I mean, I can't imagine a situation where God um, rejects one of his daughters from coming into his kingdom because she had worn two earrings in life. But in helping to clarify the significance of it, there was a talk years ago given by Elder Bednar where he shared an example of a young man and a young woman that were dating. And the young man decided against marrying the young woman he was dating because she was wearing two earrings. And he mentioned in that talk that for those hearing this story, the initial reaction would probably be a lot like most of ours would be like, boy, that just seems like such an extreme thing. But Elder Bednar pointed out the issue wasn't the earrings. It was never the earrings. It was her unwillingness to follow the prophet as closely as what she could. And to me, that's what it was all about. This young man wanted to get into the boat as safely as he could be. And he wanted to find somebody that, although, yes, it doesn't seem like a huge deal, wanted to follow the prophet as closely as possible, even if it didn't make sense. Because after all, how many times in scriptures do blessings come from following the prophet in ways that don't make sense or don't seem that big a deal? That's Paul's message. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. 
There's too much at risk. There's too much at stake. Yet, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Remember, the issue was not the earrings. As always, you guys, thank you for listening. I hope that this has been helpful in your study of Come Follow Me. I again apologize for the delay. Remember, that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and He invites us all to come follow Him. So, as always, let's keep following Him better this week and next week and every week and become better as we follow Him. Until next time, everyone, have a great week. I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.